I'm thinking about it more from a therapeutic philosophy perspective in that not understanding how one medical intervention is related to another medical phenomenon and how that's related in time over the a person's life. Like that's not really looked at. And I mean, I think that's turning out to be a bigger issue than, than anyone realizes. And that's, that's a huge difference in how I approach anyone who comes up. So to me, the proof is in the pudding in that if you do what I ask you to do and you see that it works and you have an experience, like that shouldn't be disregarded as anecdotal evidence. It's someone's personal reality. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Aaron Holston Singh. Aaron is the founder of Options Naturopathic, the Ohio Association of Naturopathic Doctors, and has been in private practice herself since 1999. She had her first encounter with natural medicine at 15 years old when her mother developed a perplexing and seemingly incurable health condition, which opened up a broad new world full of possibilities and ignited her passion for true healing. Since then, Erin has made her life's work unlocking the mystery of nonspecific illness that keep people miserable and sick when no other solutions were to be found from conventional medicine. Over the past 25 years, she has worked to help patients avoid and stop pharmaceuticals by shifting practices that contribute to premature death, using the learnings of natural medicine to actively decode what is going on in patients' bodies and minds across all their health issues. Her undying quest to find answers landed her in the realm of cancer care, where she is now focused on creating a new culture of healthcare from the ground up. This was truly a perspective-enhancing and unconventional conversation in that Erin lays out her deviation from the conventions of traditional healthcare. Erin shares her journey through the world of medicine, her philosophy on care, her learnings from the status quo and desire to change the culture of healthcare, her entrepreneurial journey, starting and building a practice and options naturopathic to a million-dollar natural medicine business, what natural medicine even is, the power of meditation, the implications of psychedelics, and a whole lot more along the way. So please enjoy my conversation with Aaron after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. In... Preparing for uh, this conversation today, 
I did my best to understand the, you know, the nature of, of what it is that, that you're actually doing. I think the, maybe the most interesting place to start for, for those who may be new to the concept of naturopathic medicine, as it's certainly not something I was aware of, just kind of take us through what it is and, and how you came yourself to, to be interested in it and building your whole business around it. Sure, absolutely. So naturopathic medicine actually comes from two different methods in holistic healthcare. One is called nature cure, and that came out of like 18th, 19th century European hydrotherapy using alternating hot and cold water in various forms. That was one, like it was really a a vital, what we call a vitalist approach, like believing that the individual or even animals and livestock it was used a lot in um, could heal could produce a healing response if they were stimulated with hot or cold water. So it's about this whole concept of what we call in naturopathic medicine, the vis or the vis medicatrix nature. It's Latin for the healing power of nature. We all got it because it's just what nature does, right? You know, you cut, you, you cut a hole in a tree. It's going to get a big like knobby thing over the outside of it. It's, it's what we do. We, yeah. we heal. So it's taking that, reality and that principle of observing nature and kind of putting it into practice. So that's one half of naturopathy or naturopathic medicine. The other half comes from homeopathy. And homeopathy is a school of medicine that believes that you can take something to its infinitesimal amount and you can percuss it and then, which is essentially a process of shaking it or like pounding it. And that potentizes it and it takes really the vibration of the original substance and transfers it to the medium, the carrier medium, whether it's water for soluble substances or whether it's like lactose or sucrose for non-soluble substances. So homeopathy is about stimulating the vis and nature cure is about stimulating the vis. And I see that as the fundamental principle of naturopathic medicine because it's all about how do we use nature and how do we help your body to heal itself? That's naturopathic medicine, if you ask me. <laughs> awesome. And I think we'll unpack a lot more of, yeah. of in practice what that, that looks like. Sure. How is it that, that you came to find yourself you know, interested and in, in wanting to learn even at the onset to, to actually yeah. practicing? Well, my, my journey was a bit of a rough one early on in life. I really got interested in natural medicine by getting exposed to some folks that were in the Amish community. And I was also very disenchanted and very upset and, you know, even downright angry with the conventional healthcare system because of a pretty serious misdiagnosis they'd made of my mother when I was 15. So the reality was that she had a degenerative neurological condition that really impacted her over many years. And she was misdiagnosed as a schizophrenic. So you can imagine the treatment that they gave her as a schizophrenic actually drove the chronic neurological degeneration. And, you know, this took decades to unpack what was really going on. And I think that was really the main impetus of why I wanted to study natural medicine and why I was, you know, frustrated with the conventional system. And then I really went looking very deeply about what were those differences and how do I, how, why does this methodology make more sense? And So that was, you know, both a little bit of my spark into natural medicine, but also my entrepreneurial spark. Yeah. Because the the story of my family was that, oh, we don't have any money. 
there's no money. There's no money. There's no money. It was like, that was the thing that I was always hearing. So I just sort of thought when I was a kid, like, well, I'm going to have fun for myself. I'm going to have to, you know, do well in school. I'm going to have to figure this out. And that, you know, by the time I got through naturopathic school, just really fed into my entrepreneurial nature. But I think I had an entrepreneurial nature already. You know, I used to make earrings and yeah. sell earrings. I called them Aaron's earbobs. <laughs> I like, you know, I went to India for the first time in 96 and I, you know, saw how inexpensive these beautiful silk scarves were. And I just bought a ton of them and then I brought them home and I sold them. You know, it was like just kind of helped me. Things like that really helped that getting just that idea, that mindset of getting by and knowing that I was going to need money. I had to figure out how to how to make it work. Yeah, it was interesting because in in again, researching, you know, the kind of overview of the space, I found that maybe a lot of people's path to to this kind of, of practice comes from having exhausted maybe the the conventional path and and being somewhat like you said, you know, disillusioned, unsatisfied with the, you know, the, the, the treatment of symptoms and lack of holistic understanding of maybe root cause and, and things that are, that are actually going on. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's at least, you know, 40 plus percent of the people that come to see me as patients is that that's one of the first things they say. It's like, I've been everywhere. I've done everything. I've exhausted all hope and and I'm always like, you haven't tried this. Right. So it's really satisfying work because I'm able to really help people who think that they there is no hope and I'm able to give people hope. It's it's one of the best parts of my work. So I want to, you know, maybe play a, a skeptics advocate here early on in the conversation sure. so that, you know, you can kind of address it up front. And, and I imagine it's something that, you know, you often do have to address, you know, from patients, from patients, family members, as you're getting to know them at the onset of your relationship. So with, with that preface, you know, if you, if you Google naturopathic practices online, I think you'll find that in pockets of the internet, practically uninsurable and medically unproven in, in some capacities. And I'm sure you've contended with a certain skepticism over, over your career so, so how do you respond to that kind of skepticism that you might encounter from prospective people who are, are looking for, for treatment and for, for help? You know, what's kind of funny, Jeffrey, is that that doesn't almost never happens anymore. Yeah. Like that used to happen back when I first started my practice and I was, you know, the first naturopath in, in Ohio and in Cleveland. I mean, to stay here, there had been other people before before me. And I should say the modern era, too, because there were, you know. Now yeah, that's yeah. back in the day and, you know, the mid 50s, 40s and whatnot. But in any event, I don't get that kind of skepticism anymore. And I think, you know, if I did, I would I would approach it as saying, well, the evidence that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It's like, why is it that the hospital gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the cancer centers like they have their own building now, like both university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic, they have their own entire buildings dedicated to cancer. Like, why is cancer getting bigger? Well, if you look at everything else that they do, it must be kind of a funnel. I don't know. That's I mean, I say I don't know, but I I working with cancer, I understand what it is what it takes to make cancer and to perpetuate cancer and to destabilize a person who's, you know, got a cancer. So 
is a certain profit motives. And- well, I'm not even speaking about the profit motives. I'm speaking about, I mean, everybody in a capitalist world, people need to make money. I'm thinking about it more from a therapeutic philosophy perspective in that not understanding how one medical intervention is related to another medical phenomenon and how that's related in time over the a person's life. Like that's not really looked at. And I mean, I think that's, turning out to be a bigger issue than than anyone realizes. And that's that's a huge difference in how I approach anyone who comes up. So to me, the proof is in the pudding and that if you do what I ask you to do and you see that it works and you have an experience like that shouldn't be disregarded as anecdotal evidence. It's someone's personal reality. And it's a very important part of the story that I think has gotten, you know, disregarded or maybe it has you know some lip service there's not it's not really truly implemented in the practices in terms of long term thinking about the over the course of somebody's life right that's where it gets it's missed and then the relationship between a disease or an issue that you had in your childhood to your adulthood like who's talking about that right the, the, that holistic you know patient history that's inclusive of a lot more than maybe what's even yeah. documented. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you might look at really serious conditions, but there's a loss of understanding of the person of the, you know, we talk about pa- patient, the patient becomes, the person becomes a patient and the patient becomes a case. And the case has to do with these very serious medical issues. And if there aren't serious medical issues, people don't think it's important. I mean, I'll give you an example. Yep. I have on my intake form, you know, how many courses of antibiotics have you taken over the course of your life? And people invariably say, oh, not many, just a few. How many is a few? Could you guess? You know, is it one to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, 10 to 20? Yeah. You can't believe how many people have had 15 to 20 plus courses of antibiotics over the course of their life and they don't think it's a big deal. But what we're now understanding, what science has shown us is that we're composed of the microbiome. We think we have a microbiome. No people, we are the microbiome. You know, the microbiome is this like structured phenomena of organisms, little things that live in us. They really are us. We're not separate from them. So I think when we keep prescribing antibiotics and this goes for the livestock and our food systems as well, you know, you kill the soil, you kill the human gut. They're parallel phenomena here that are very related in that the human gut is like an interiorized landscape, right? So you kill this, you kill that. They're both related. And then when you're killing the gut, this is the fundamentals of naturopathic medicine too, I forgot, which is that we really say all disease begins in the gut. And, you know, naturopathic medicine, the term naturopathic medicine was coined in 1902. So we've been saying that for 121 years at this point. And that's, you know, since we gave ourselves a name these eclectic physicians that were understanding we don't want to use calomel, which is mercury, one of the big medicines at the time. Mercury was medicine, right? Right, right. So understanding, I don't want to go in that direction, the toxic stuff, because we see what's happening. We want to go and use these other things that are stimulating a person's capacity to heal. Very different. Very different. So this this is all fascinating. let's, let's, uh, Let's maybe ground it in what options naturopathic is and kind of the, the nature of, of your practice and your business and, you know, how it is honing in on, on your, your entrepreneurial spirit that, yeah, that you yeah. mentioned, like how did it actually come together and, and what did it look like when it got started? Sure. Sure. Well, 
I would say that options naturopathic is fundamentally at this point, about 25 years in, a repository of information. Um, we are naturopathic doctors and, and other practitioners supporting education. We do a lot of metabolic terrain-centric cancer care. We ultimately want to teach people how to use nature as medicine and understand their bodies as sense organs, as uh, systems that show you and lead you to your purpose and, and help you understand yourself in the context of your life. And then to speak to your second question about um, how, how I got started in the business. Yeah. So really I was, you know, a lot more naive at what, what, whatever it was, 28, 29, when I first, you know, graduated from school. And I just was like, I'm going to go back East. There's nobody there, you know, no naturopathic doctors there. And it was like, I would walk down the street and everybody I saw was a potential patient. That was just sort of like how my mindset at the time. And I knew that there was a need. It's just that people didn't understand what it was that I did. But if they just liked the basic concepts, you know, the, the six, six basic principles of naturopathic medicine, like treat the root cause, identify and address that, you know, the vis medicatrix nature, eh? the healing power of nature, looking at the past, treat the whole person, use education, the doctor's a teacher, like all of those things, people would resonate with that. And then they'd come and see me and I'd be kind of amazed, like, you didn't know anything about me or you just looked me up on the internet and you would come like find my website. You'd come see me. And of course I was one of the first naturopaths to have a website too. It's like, this is 1999, 2000 and all that was just getting started. So, you know, I also had a little bit of, of support. I started my business with very, very little capital. I mean, less than $20,000. And um, I also had the support. I have to, you know, give a, a call out to um, Sal Russo, who in his negotiation of me and my, you know, terror to actually start paying rent for a space, <laughs> he just kept giving me another month of free rent. <laughs> so like after, I don't know, an hour or something, I got like six months of free rent wow. to start my practice in the Heights Medical Building in Cleveland Heights, where we still are today. We were in a smaller suite until 2021, January of 2021. We we moved to a much bigger suite in the space. We're above Luna in Cleveland Heights. And we have a little shop there, a little apothecary. And we have an online store. And I took on a resident in 2018. So for, you know, many, many years, it was just me and my one admin person. And then I also have to qualify that I did live out of state for a total of six years and maintain my business because of my husband's work. And then I um, also had kids two kids during that time. My daughter was born in 2015. And then that was right around the time that I found another naturopathic doctor who had really figured out how to address cancer, hmm. Dr. Nisha Winters. And so I really started studying deeply with her and her work. And that's really when the business kind of got crazy because it was not only her, it was me kind of just taking on a resident, having more employees, having more people, and then hearing about EO entrepreneurs organization. And I, somebody asked me to come and speak first about meditation and then later about what I do. And I was like, what is this EO thing? Like mm. I'm an entrepreneur. Like I need to be a part of that. So then I joined EO in 2018. So the combination of all of those things, my business really, it, it doubled between 
2018 and 2022, somewhere in there, like that just yeah, yeah. kind of took off. And I actually ran into another um, local Cleveland person, business owner on Saturday, and she said something really profound. This is um, Jackie Roth from Muse, who's a marketing firm here in town. She said, if you have someone who starts a business for the just intention of starting a business because they're going to sell something, they're going to make something, that's very different than somebody who starts a business because they're practicing their craft and oh, then yeah. they're trying to scale that. And I'm sure there, you probably have talked to so many people that's something you've, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, but I'm like, oh my God, that's the problem because I'm entrepreneurial, but I'm not by nature a business person. I'm also very empathic and, you know, managing people has been really a, a huge learning curve for me. Also a huge gift in terms of my own self-development and self-awareness. And it's the last five years have been, have been pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. It is interesting. You mentioned that I, I've been thinking recently about the, it's not a novel concept, but the idea of like a life's work, the, the opus the, the thing that you're trying to build that is like an expression of who you are for other people. I think there is this, this thread pattern for, for entrepreneurs that like, ultimately it's, it's an attempt to like manifest that in, in what it is they're building. Cause it's not, it's not enough to just like want to be successful in business. Like there, everyone has got a little bit more motivating them than that. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, when I, I was never looking to grow, and you, you join entrepreneurs organization in the accelerator program. If your business is under a million, and I was like, I never cared about getting to a million dollars in sales. Like that was absolutely had nothing to do with my purpose and my mission and my goals. And, you know, I hardly saw myself as like a business owner. Obviously I knew I was a business owner, but it wasn't like I was thinking of, this is what I'm doing is a business. And right. that's been something I've had to really kind of shift into and, at this point, accept because even though I have a whole other vision and and purpose that's larger, you know, I'm I'm using the business to help achieve those goals. And then sometimes I'm like, am I going to be able to use the business to achieve these other goals? So it's really a lot to to think about and to figure out and a little frustrating to not have more time to focus on my goals because I'm so much focused on the business and, you know, having to manage the administrative side still. And while I'm still seeing patients and, you know, being one of the key sources of revenue in the business, it's really hard to find the time to work on the business, let alone have two kids and work on sure. everything else that I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm just consistently trying to find the people who can help me as they say, who, not how, right? Right, right. W what have you learned from the business side of it that has been interesting to you? You know, maybe things that you weren't expecting to be transferable or applicable in, in other aspects of your life, but as you've, you know, grown a, a seven-figure business, things that, that you've taken with you that, that are interesting. Oh my goodness. Well, I think it's kind of funny that we're recording this here at Impact Architects that does a lot of work with traction because traction is one of the key things that has really when we're when we're humming along and we've got a good clear team running traction using that methodology the entrepreneurial operating system has been one of the greatest tools that has has really helped us along the way and you know I 
I really wish I had more time to read business books, but fortunately that's something my husband does. And so I've really learned a lot from him. He has an MBA and he, he came to the U.S. from India and he's worked in Fortune 500 in private equity and he has his own family office fund and he's an investor and he's also a CEO. So while our lives are crazy because we're both running separate companies, yeah. I have learned so much from him and, you know, he's really just a wonderful person to for me to bounce things off of. And, you know, when I come into a difficult situation, I'm like, hey, hon, what do you think about this? And at the moment, we don't have as much time as I'd like to talk about my business because, you know, he's he's just a busy guy. right? So it's kind of crazy that yep. I don't get the same access as you would think that I'd get. I mean, obviously I, I do, but we just don't have the time. So I've learned a lot about people from him. That's, I think, probably the hardest part for me because I just see people as family. I don't know. It's 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 challenging, but I'm really learning a ton and it just, you know, it keeps you on your toes, like having to shift and change and the overlap between what's kind of happening across the globe with respect to people knowing that the leaders have to change and the people in charge have to change and be more vulnerable, be more self-aware, like all of that really resonates with what I do on the other side of my business where I'm actually, you know, the the doctor that's helping right, a right. person see themselves and use their body as a tool for self-awareness. Like, I just think it's kind of a beautiful time to be alive and to be doing what I'm doing because I've been at this for a really long time. And now the whole world, I feel like the whole world is moving my direction. And there's a part of me that has a little bit of a difficult time when all these people are starting functional medicine practices. And I'm like, wait, we were the original functional medicine docs, but like if the whole world's going to use nature as medicine, like we're going to need a lot of people to move in this direction. So my, one of my slogans for the business now is co-creating a new culture of healthcare in healing, mm. which is kind of speaks for itself, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah. hope, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think so. What you mentioned, it, it brings up, and maybe this is not the right lens through which to look at it, but as a business, and we can we can tie in the the other side of the coin here if you'd like. Is is traditional conventional practice competition? Like, how do you think about what what competition is, and in, in in pursuit of you know helping people heal? Really good question. I have to say, the first differentiation I'd like to make there is between conventional and traditional, because most semantically most like, people those are different. They're very different, and most people will come and say, well, I just really have exhausted, you know, traditional medicine. And I say, hold off, hold up there, because it's really the convention, conventional medicine. You know, when their new study comes out, they're going to stop this practice. They're going to throw the old practice out. Right. Like that's the convention and the convention of modern allopathic Western medicine. It has been building for probably 2000 plus years. I mean, this is the Cartesian separation of mind and body or, you know, the evolution of natural philosophy to natural science to just science. And what we do, what what I consider myself to be is a traditional medicine person. So the traditions are what go back millennia. I see. Yeah. And the traditions are based on experiences. They're based on observation. And 
it is a, it's also scientific, even though people don't see it that way. But, you know, there's this there's kind of a dogma of science these days, unfortunately. And I think science, you know, we need it. And I love the methodology of it, but it has absolutely become a bit politicized. You know, there's even a term they call it scientism, scientism, where it's, you know, looking at it more like a belief where there are practices that haven't been validated, but it's the culture of what happens in the medical system. And I'll leave it there, but there's one, there's one other thing I want to say about traditional medicine, which is Mm -hmm. this piece around how the conventional, what we would, you know, typically call evidence-based medicine, it disregards that experience. And when you look at the history of humanity, we really went from being mystical beings you know, more spiritual. If you go back to India, some of the first scriptures that were ever written in the Rig Veda, the Upanishads, it's talking about knowing the answers by going within and referring internally or meditation, yoga, these types of things. And then we started looking at the exterior world and then we had natural philosophy or what you can call empiricism. So observational Mm -hmm. looking and then knowing what is true And then that evolved into, well, like I said, you know, philosophy, science, natural science to science. And that's really more about breaking things down into the parts, the reductionism of trying to understand what's going on in the body by understanding the organs and then the cells and then the DNA and then the little things inside of the cells, (laughs) all of the different organelles that are inside the cells, the mitochondria. And all of that is so important, but not if you don't then back out that lens and look at the view from a a truly holistic perspective and integrate it. And I don't think that happens. So we lose a lot there. I I think you you just kind of introduced this this idea, but soup to nuts, I think it'd be really helpful to to understand, you know, what what this looks like and can look like in practice. And and perhaps also in contrast to some of the limitations of of conventional care that naturopathic practice might assist in? I think the thing about the conventional care or what, you know, we might call the standard of care is they're, they're trying to find these particular standards that work across the board based on research. I think the issue or the problem within that is following something that happened back in, I think it was probably the 50s, might have been the early 60s, but there was essentially a meeting of physicians looking at the clinically controlled trial. And they sat down and they said, let's look at this. Let's see if, does this really work? Is this an effective way of assessing? Is this a good tool to see if a drug or a, or a procedure or a practice actually works? And one of the key aspects of these types of research studies is that you have to have what they call a homogenous group of people. So a homogenous group of people is people that all fit the same demographics or the same gender or ethnicity, whatever. You're trying to find that group that you can then study. As a control. As, as like a control. One of my favorite authors, his name is Harris Coulter. I'm always sending like young medical students to Harris Coulter's work because he wrote a four-part history of medicine called Divided Legacy that really clearly differentiates the vitalistic and the rationalistic. So the naturopathic and the allopathic sides of the way you can look at the human body in medicine. But so Harris Coulter wrote this little book about the clinically controlled trial. And he talks about how when they had that meeting and talked about 
a homogenous group of people, they realized that it didn't really work because there's no such thing. So you can you can lump people together based on ethnicity or age or gender or whatever, but people are so fundamentally different and they have different experiences and they have different backgrounds and they have different traumas and all of these pieces that they, they actually realized in the meeting that it didn't work, but they didn't have a solution. So they just kept using that method. Hmm. And that became one of the foundations that we now see is being called the standard of care. Again, they're trying to lump everybody into the same thing. So when we some, see someone who has the same diagnosis of the same type of cancer, for example, they want to give them exactly the same treatment, and that's the standard. But why is everybody scared about the C word? Because what's being done isn't working. By and large, most people know that they get freaked out when they have cancer because it's threatening your entire life. And the, the therapies that are available, it's kind of a crapshoot, right? So homogenous to standard of care. And what do we do? What we do is we evaluate what are the causes. And I think of cancer, you know, as, a, as an excellent example of just that layer caking of there's so many different things that are off, what we really have to do is we have to assess the person's whole, we call it the terrain, and I can explain what that means. Mm -hmm. um, terrain is really the field. It's the, the whole internal aspect of a person, but it's also that internal part of someone in the context of the external. So it's the internal and external environment that's really composed of what food do you eat? What nutrition is in that food? What's the soil that the food was grown in? What toxicants were put on the soil? Yep. What toxicants do you put in your body? What are you putting on your skin? What makeup are you wearing? What's your personal experience? What's your history? What's your family history? What's the impact of your family history on your epigenetics? So what turns your genes on and off? How are you thinking? How have you processed? How do you interface with the world? How do you process the world, both, you know, mentally as well as physically? So, you know, everybody's hearing this term methylation, you know, it's processing. It's like, how do I move the different components and the different molecules around? How do I eliminate them? How do I detoxify myself? How well does my liver work? And it's your digestion, of course, right? So that history of a person, the experience, all of that is the terrain. So that's what we're assessing. That's what we're looking at to help someone see what is broken and how do we help you fix it? How do we help you become whole again from yep. these, these fractionated parts of yourself, these alienated parts of yourself, this pain maybe that you can't look at? I mean, it's the gamut of it that has to be considered when you're working with somebody in natural medicine. That's the difference. That is helpful context. Uh, there, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot there. I'm sorry. It's just... <laughs> It's so much. So proof in the pudding, you know, take us through like a patient comes to you. Okay. Right. Yeah. And how do we do all that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we definitely have a pretty comprehensive process for the sicker folks, the cancer folks. But if you're just a regular person, you know, you got maybe a chronic cough or maybe you have some bloating or maybe you have, you know, PMS or some of the simple stuff is the way I see it, you know, chronic sinus infections, like things that, you know, it's like a piece of cake. We have you fill out an intake form. We come in and we just take your history and we might 
you know, want to look at blood work if you have some. We might have you get some blood work done. But by and large, we're just helping you understand yourself in the context of your history and, you know, what interventions had been done in the past, you know, how many vaccines have you had? How many courses of antibiotics have you had? What medications have you taken? You know, where'd you grow up? What's the circumstances of your family? How is your relationship with your parents? Like, that's a question I ask almost all my patients because it's really telling of their worldview and their emotional state, that perspective. So I really take that into consideration very deeply. And then we'll give you a plan. And the plan is going to consist of generally three broad sweeping areas. One's going to be lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at food, you're looking at exercise. I call it stillness movement. Yeah, stillness yeah. is one section, movement's another section. Um, maybe you're looking at you know detoxification, what you're putting into your system. You're looking at diet. You're looking at what are you eating. You're looking at your metabolic health. You know How well are you able to burn fat for fuel versus being stuck on burning carbs for fuel, something people don't think about a lot or understand that in the context of mitochondrial function. So that's a big part of what we look at and how we help people know when we got to support this because that's not working. So all that's really evident in the history that we get, but then we look a little deeper when we need to with objective numbers, looking Mm -hmm. at blood work. And we assess labs in a very different way than just looking at the reference range because the reference range changes from city to city and state to state and year to year, depending on the population. So if you have a population getting sicker, you don't want to be using just your standard reference ranges. You want an optimal range for humans. And we use Dr. Nacia's ranges, the gal that I trained with, with cancer, because she's, what, 32 years out from a stage four ovarian cancer diagnosis and has been looking at her labs and thousands of patients' labs and Now, of course, I've done the same over the last seven years of just, I mean, countless, countless, countless people's blood work. And you can very clearly see what's happening in the terrain based on their labs. Really useful information because even though I can see what's happening with the person, they may not necessarily believe me. And sometimes people need that validation. They need that kind of objective feedback so that then they can see themselves and understand when it's really important for them to do something about it rather than just somebody saying, hey, you know, some people are really good listening to to doctors and some people are not. So. Yeah. Well, it's always, I think, a challenge because there's there's a information asymmetry always between patients and doctors and and how I I liked your concept of the the doctor is the teacher, because I always felt like it should be more like that. Uh, in, in practice. Yeah, you really want to teach people how to understand themselves and what they need to know about themselves rather than just kind of dictating what they do. I mean, I always say that that era is over. Like it's a collaborative partnership in how we work with people. You're you're also a part of it as the patient. In fact, I I wrote this whole document that I still haven't put into use that's called the expectations agreement that explains what's our work What's your work and what's the work we're going to do together? And I think that's a really important way to approach someone's own life. You know, like I can be your coach and tell you what to do, but it's up to you whether you want to do it or not. And it's not my responsibility if you don't get well because of what you didn't do when I knew what you needed to do. And, you know, so a big part of that, of course, is trust and the relationship. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a two-way street. It's a two-way sure. street. Absolutely. So you had mentioned earlier, you know, an uncertainty if, if ultimately in its entirety, you know, the business will, will allow you to achieve, you know, maybe what it is that you, you want to ultimately achieve. So I would love to just ask, you know, where, where are you trying to go? What, what does success look like? And, and what is the overlap of, of those two worlds? Yeah, that's a, the, another difficult question that is a little bit of a stumper, but I think there's two sides to success for me. One is living my own medicine, being in my own truth of being able to slow down, be in the present moment, which I like to call power now. You take space time and you get space to power and time to now. So power now because there's nothing but the present moment. So if I, the more I can remember to do that and just know that I can't control the future, I can only do what I can do right now, I can get myself organized, that's success, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one side of success, which is maybe my own internal personal success. But in a, in a larger context for me, success would be, you know, achieving my larger dreams. I have a book that I've written that really needs a lot of editing to be a finished product. That's incredibly frustrating to me because it's been almost four, three, four years since I really wrote the bulk of that and have not had the time to do it or attend to it or even give the energy to it to get a proper editor to help me. I'm trying to figure all that out still. Um, but then another piece of what would be what I would qualify as success is what I've realized in this process over the last four years when I keep asking myself, like, what is it that I really want to focus on? I have, I'm a visionary. I have so many dreams. I have so many things that I'd love to see change and happen in this world with respect to this co-creation of a new culture of healthcare and the world becoming more, you know, valuing indigenous aspects, values of the world, more equity, all those kinds of things, like having a healing center. What's really speaking to me is significantly helping, impacting the epidemic of mental health, what's happening with children being put on Ritalin and Adderall, you know, people abusing, not abusing, but, you know, the maybe the doctors abusing the prescription of antidepressants and people not knowing where to go. Like, it's one of my fortes. It's one of the things that just, you know, it speaks to me so much because I've seen it work with something so simple. Like I have this program we call the mind body temperament balancing, and it's actually something anybody can do for 150 bucks. I'll give you a three month program and you can try it. It's all on my website, but it's something I learned from my mentor. And then I put it in practice for 25 years and I see, oh, my God, like this is incredible. Like you see what happens to people, people who have nightmares. They no longer have nightmares. And all they're doing are some homeopathic remedies that are matching their consciousness, their condition, their physical state. And it's completely not toxic. So, you know, I can get people off antidepressants and Adderall and Ritalin. Like when they come to me, they're like, I don't want to take these things or they don't. And they failed in the past trying to get off. But you know, somebody just told me they heard on NPR the other day that the not the suicide rate, but the homicide rate between 15 year olds and 24 year olds has grown by 90 percent. I mean, that's that's outrageous. And it, it breaks my heart because I know that there's a solution. So that's another part of what I'm trying to do right now is to figure out how to take this training 
of, I was thinking initially practitioners or, you know, naturopathic doctors to this other thing that my mentor taught me that he called the brain protocol. I call it the optimal maturation program. And it's one of our private labeled products. We have a brand called divine influence and it's the idea of taking nature as medicine, but the optimal maturation program walks a person through the stages of development mm-hmm. because it's helping to flush out the damages or the traumas or, you know, either physical or iatrogenic or emotional, mental events that left an impression. It helps to flush that out and it helps to normalize the signaling in the body and the endocrine system. So this is, you know, not what you would traditionally conventionally call evidence-based it's more something that we observe and we see how people respond to it because it's an energetic medicine yeah so it's very very weird thing and a very very difficult no, yeah, thing yeah. very difficult thing to sell but it's experiential so i have a training course that i'm i did it like 7 8 years ago and i'm trying to rebrand it with the new languaging of optimal maturation to, and i was thinking i want to do this for practitioners but now i realize like I really want to teach this to just anybody who wants to learn it and practice it because it's something that should be in the hands of humanity at this critical time when we don't know how to not use pharmaceuticals for these very serious and very, you know, scary and challenging aspects of what's going on. And it's the beautiful thing is when you address the mind and you use homeopathy, you're also addressing the body. Yeah, Which is yeah. why I call it the mind-body temperament balancing because you can't separate mind and body. Oh, no, they're definitely right. Like it's we think of them separate, but they're not separate. So getting all of that going and figuring out a way to not just be seeing the doctor one one patient at a time, but being able to train people is one of my big goals. That's mm. so like the a scale concept. It's it's a scale concept, I I suppose, but I think that's the part I'm really bad at. <laughs> And yeah, so, yeah. you know, it goes back to the whole thing about practicing my craft versus being the business person. So that's been a big part of what this past year has been teaching me is how to get focused. You know, I'm very scattered as a visionary. I've got a lot of ideas and really honing on what are the few things that I want to focus on and then being able to be efficient and find the time to do it effectively is, you know, I'm, I'm learning. I'm still maybe a little young, but I feel like I'm old. So I'm getting there. Yeah. Staying in the present moment. What does that experiential treatment, what, what, what does it like look like in practice? I'm just trying to. Okay. So the, so the two things I talked about are our healing programs that you can actually do not as a patient. Yeah. And if you have any issues, I certainly encourage you to come in and let us support you because that's part of us being like a repository and knowing what to do when you get acutely ill. But the two healing programs, one is essentially just homeopathic medicines that you take once a week. There might be a five-day onboarding and they're just little like sucrose pellets. You toss them in your mouth and you let them dissolve under your tongue like once a week. That's literally all that you have to do after you fill out a questionnaire or after you've seen one of us as a patient and we give you the prescription, if you will, of homeopathic medicines. So that there's a lot of material about that on my website. If anybody wants to read about it, it's a lot to explain, but it's essentially mirroring the energetics of you with substances that came from nature. It was those diluted and potentized substances, homeopathics that I talked about. And then the other half of it is that optimal maturation, which 
historically was a homeopathic medicine. Now it's made in a little different methodology, but it's essentially capturing the vibration or the essence of the developmental stages that a person goes through. We call them phases and it's capturing that through the different organs and glands and tissues that develop in sync with one another in each of those phases. So when you put those two together, you're dealing with what happens to everybody in development and you're looking at the individual and how they're unique and special and not homogenous, right? So it's really putting the two together and it's, it's something that I do in nearly every patient because it's what I learned from my first mentor, right? When I graduated from school, the Dr. Gagneau yeah. from, he was, a, he was a medical doctor in France who studied all the holistic schools of thought and was also a very spiritual person and just put this methodology together. And after doing it, I'm like, this is amazing. Mm. So wanted to, wanted to scale it, I guess, in another way. And I, I think I need some help with marketing. I have, I have like three <laughs> or four people emailing me every single day about marketing and they know I haven't figured it out, <laughs> but it's coming. Watch out. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, I want, one thing I wanted to ask you about in kind of like a, a magical hypothetical world is, you know, given om, omniscient power, what would you change about the existing healthcare system? Wow. And yes. is there like any low hanging fruit? Oh. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of low hanging fruit. But I, when I think about the conventional healthcare system, I think about it just the way I think about human development. I think about it. You know, as I was talking about all the practices funneling into cancer, mm -hmm. because the first practices are layer caking onto something bigger. I think about it developmentally, like we should take care of the children first. So if I were going to, you know, be head honcho in the world of healthcare, I would be working with the children and I would have the children be working with the soil and I'd be incorporating, you know, organic agronomists and deep soil my friend has a business named deep soil who's an agronomist and we would work together we'd help with the farmers and that whole we would reconnect the world of working with the earth and working with healing and i'd probably also you know connect to the shamanic world and you know again the indigenous like i always had a calling to the shamanic world i used to read carlos castaneda when i was like 16 and i think Shamanic being shamans. Shamans and just, you know, kind of the, it's sort of like the Western side of the Eastern mysticism, right? Like shamans, you think of like South America and yeah. you think of plant medicine and things like that. But it's also the coming together of like the Eastern mysticism and the looking within. Like I'd really bring and bridge those worlds into the world of science and you know, what we might think of as conventional medicine or, or scientific research, like that's how I see us. Like we use that and we use the, the traditional science and the empirical knowledge. We put it all together and we don't separate out a piece of it and leave it hanging. But back to the, how would I, you know, work with the healthcare system, you know, it would be working with the kids and it would also be really reintroducing the philosophy of medicine, which is, the the core component of you know what we practice as vitalistic naturopathic practitioners is understanding that 
when you have an acute illness, the acute illness is really the healing crisis. So what is a healing crisis? It means your body, you, your consciousness, your feeling states resolve something and then you get sick. So I could give you probably 50 examples of how that happens. You know, you're, you're a stressed out college student and you take your exams and then you get sick. Why does that happen? Well, you were in this high state of stress and then you resolved all your fears and all your anxieties about your exams or your papers and then everything comes out. And instead of looking at that as infection, we think of it as outfection because what you're really doing is you're clearing your old self. You're clearing that fearful part of yourself. You're resolving something. You're becoming whole again and you're discharging the old you. Until the, until the medical world understands that, I think we're going to be really stuck for a really long time because we're, we're killing ourselves. When we're taking an antibiotic, when we think we have an infection because we think a little bug jumped out from you over to me and made me sick. Well, we know that the microbiome and the diversity in the microbiome is what makes our immune system stronger. Right. Because like fundamental still in, in both worlds is, is the Hippocratic kind of idea, right? Of, of do no harm. And well, you would think, but <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think that it's, that's another area that's not really put into practice. Right. So I'm always asking, when are we going to reconcile germ theory with the microbiome? When's that happening? Right. Well, because- even to your point earlier about, you know, we used to prescribe mercury and bloodletting and, you know, it's, you know, the funny thing about that bloodletting, sometimes we do actually tell people to, to do what we call a therapeutic phlebotomy, because if they have too much iron in their blood, it can be really a problem of oxidative stress. So bloodletting in the right circumstance when you've been appropriately assessed if you need it. <laughs> but I get it what you're saying. It sounds pretty crazy. Leech, leeches on a person. But, you know, there is even something to that in Chinese medicine, like when there's stagnation in the blood and you need the blood flowing and then they would, you know. So I don't know that the bloodletting and the leeches were so bad, although I'm really glad we're not using leeches. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the role of psychedelics and, 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 and that going mm-hmm. forward? Mm hmm. So psychedelics are making a huge, huge renaissance. I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock to not have heard about the renaissance that's happening in the research realm in psychedelics. And, you know, I always have a little bit of a kind of a personal connection, I guess. And this is one of my entrepreneurial stories that I just realized this morning thinking about, you know, coming here and thinking about my entrepreneurial background was that I used to go to Grateful Dead shows and it's like, you know, everybody who was following the dead, they were all little entrepreneurs because they'd like sell, they'd set up their booth and they'd like sell stuff. You know, they were selling bracelets or they were selling Amber, this like perfume stuff, or they were selling hats or stuff that they made, or they were selling LSD. Right. And so that was another thing that I got very interested in when I was in high school. And, you know, I was managing my own trauma at the time. So you remember what happened with my mom? Like, I mean, I'm not really ashamed to admit it in a public way because it was a huge influence on my life. It actually led me to my spirituality, to the meditation practice that I've been doing for, what, 32 years or something like that. Meditation on the heart. It's called heartfulness. The psychedelics, I think, are a way for humans to understand that we're more than just this, like, you know, hard matter, this this dense world of physicality, it helps people to open their eyes to 
understand that we're something so much more than that. And if if we're only thinking about the physical world, I think that's really where we've gone awry in medicine because we're we're spiritual beings, we're mystical beings. And so I think, you know, I personally believe these little substances were either left for us, you know, by the great consciousness to be found. Yeah. Or, you know, even people have a little bit of a bias against some of the man-made psychedelics like LSD, MDMA is not a classic psychedelic, but, you know, making huge headway with FDA trials right now, um, tons of research, but people have a bias against the chemical substances. And, you know, I'm like, who are we to say how these things arrived, even though they were man-made? It was still an accident, you know, Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD from ergot, the the rye, like he had no idea what it sat on a shelf for what five, eight years, something like that, before he accidentally got some on his finger and and then ended up having that that historic bicycle ride home. Um so I think psychedelics are, you know, definitely becoming part, maybe it's maybe they're the way that the conventional and the indigenous or the traditional medicine is going to be able to come together because it gives that truly holistic perspective. So, you know, I'm a big advocate and I don't even think you can call it a believer because you can't argue with somebody's experience. And, you know, it's part of what is real medicine to me. And, and at the same time, I think that even then, even with, you know, as amazing as psychedelics are, we have to be very careful and we have to understand that it's not the end all be all. And beyond that is those spiritual practices and the mysticism and coming full circle back to the practice of going within, listening to your inner being, listening to the heart. And the the evolution of consciousness is really something that we're doing with our minds and we don't really even need the psychedelics ultimately. But, you know, maybe they're resurging right now because humanity is in such a crisis. Does that answer your question? It does. Yes. Yeah. All all very fascinating. I feel like we've covered uh, quite a, a breadth of topics. If there is something within your own journey related to the work you're doing, the, the practice that, that you, you have that we haven't talked about yet that, that you think is important? Well, as I think about what else, I think about me being a visionary and all the dreams and all the difficulty that I've had in the last few years of finding that focus. I, um, I have two other areas that are really also important to me. So, you know, uh, one obviously is my current business, like just maintaining the current business enlisting more awareness for options naturopathic and letting people know that we're there to support them. You know, we really want to be a world-class service organization in the sense that we, we provide consultations, we provide information and we provide a vetted repository of medicine. So herbs, homeopathics, supplements, all those kinds of things. We have an online shop, shop.optionsnaturopathic.com. And I really appreciate people's business for, for just, you know, coming and looking at us where mm-hmm. it's very difficult in this day and age for a naturopathic doctor or even the functional medicine folks to compete with the big, big guns. 
the the big online retailer who must not be named, we might say, right? That just thinking about shopping locally and, you know, coming in and, and saying hello and helping us grow. Like if there's anything that I've said here today that people resonate with, like we'd love your support and we're horrible marketers. What can we say? Like you don't know that we're here because we don't know how to get the word out, but I'd love to see options just get better and better at what we do and being able to have the the time to structure the business and grow the business in a very methodical way because we have the bandwidth, the amplitude to do that with respect to having the appropriate revenue to be able to grow, right? Like it's very, it's difficult to compete in the medical world alone. And I think we succeed because, you know, being all cash-based because what we do works. You know, people always come in and they say, well, why is this, why isn't this everywhere? This makes so much sense. And it's like, well, it's a big competitive world out there. And I think historically the, the powers that be, the methodology, the viewpoint really succeeded in people not believing in themselves or knowing how to listen to the body and like thinking that the doctor had to tell you what to do and the doctor had to prescribe you a pill. And it was all from, I don't do anything. I don't have any accountability. I just take what you give me and it make it go away. And that whole world is changing to something else. So that's what we do. The other half of the big vision piece is I talked about, you know, impacting the realm of mental health and children's crisis with ADHD and, and all of that and what that ends up turning into for people like really wanting to make a change and a shift by teaching people how to use these particular tools. And then another piece is having a healing center. Um, a lot of folks in the Cleveland Heights, Shaker Heights area where I live are aware that I've had this big vision for the Carmelite Monastery on the corner of Lee and Fairmount. And it's it's owned by a local developer that has kind of decided to not develop it at this point. So it's just sort of sitting there and it's like sacred land that the Carmelite sisters lived on for 80 years and they had a double plot garden. They have a little fruit orchard. I mean, it's really becoming more run down. They thought they were going to tear it down and maybe part of it will need to be torn down. But I mean, what could be done on that property? Like I'm looking for other investors or other entrepreneurs or business people who are interested in working with me and doing that because I realize like I can't achieve all my dreams. <laughs> I can't do it all. But I have a really beautiful vision that I've been working on for like seven years for that property. And I've had to it keeps resurfacing and it keeps not going away and they, you know, they're not developing it. So I'm just throwing it out there because yeah, I I, I've got a lot of really amazing ideas that kind of bring together everything that we've talked about here. You know, everything we've talked about here for that one particular location. But, you know, I'm not a real estate developer. I'm not even certain that I'm, you know, cut out for owning real estate. That's not really what I'm after. I'm just I'm wanting to provide what is needed for humanity, for the people um, I want to give back in that way and be of service. I spent my life, you know, my whole, this is my life's purpose, my life's mission. And it's so clear to me that all that happened to me when I was young is part of what I'm meant to do. So I just got to keep doing it and remembering to be in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Aaron, for coming on and, uh, and sharing your story with, with all of us. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to 
be given the opportunity to have a voice and to speak to so many of these things that are so near and dear to my heart. So I really appreciate you asking me to come on. Absolutely. I'll ask you our uh, traditional closing question, which is for your favorite hidden gem in Cleveland, something that other folks may not know about, but, but perhaps should. Oh my goodness. There's so many great things about Cleveland. I feel like Cleveland in and of itself is the hidden gem that like, I'm like, don't tell anybody (laughs) how great it is to live here because the cost of living will go up. So Cleveland in and of itself, I just, you know, I've moved away from Cleveland no less than three times in my life. And then I keep coming back here. So Cleveland, but if I had to pick, can I say a couple places? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, I think one is, of course, options, options at Dravatic, like my little <laughs> baby. I think people need to come and check us out above Luna and Cleveland Heights. Um, and then there's the Shaker Lakes Nature Center, which I think is an incredible little gem right there that was saved from the interstates in the 60s. That little Doan Brook, you know, Horseshoe Lake all the way down to Lower Lake and the Nature Center in between is just such a gift. Um, I'm a big fan of nature, obviously. And then there's that place at the end of MLK. I don't know the name of it, but they like dredged the Cuyahoga and they took all the, what they dredged and they dumped it there at the end of MLK. And it's like a whole bird sanctuary. It's like a park and a walking area. And most people don't know about it. And I don't even know what it's called. Yeah. But there's almost never anybody there. (laughs) And you can like go bird watching there. And there's a beautiful little vista of the, of downtown when you get out to the edge of it. Do you know the name of that place? Not not by name, but I do have a sense where geographically it is, but I don't know what it's called. There's another place that I haven't actually been to yet, but I'm really excited about. And it's a new little non-alcoholic cocktail bar in Hingetown named Verbena. And I talked to this woman about the monastery like a year ago, and here she's already opened a place in Hingetown. She was at the Nature Center last week. And, oh, my God, like making interesting drinks out of herbs and different exotic flavors, but no alcohol. I'm like, this is my jam. I got to go check this place out. That's awesome. I love putting plugs out for other local business owners. I think I've mentioned like three or four, right? Uh, you got a few. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, if people had anything they wanted to uh, follow up with you about, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, I would say my website, optionsnaturopathic.com, and there's all kinds of ways to reach out to us there. I mean, I'm on, I'm not very good with social media right now and, you know, kind of comes in fits and starts, but we have, you know, Instagram page and I'm on LinkedIn and I have my own like kind of personal little Instagram page, Dr. Aaron underscore metaphysician that I've started, but I'm I'm not, I'm not a millennial. So like the social media piece for me and just haven't quite figured out how to really get that all going, but I'll, I'll be there and I'll be there in the future. Maybe by the time somebody hears this, it'll all be exploding on there. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows what the future holds? Yeah. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Appreciate it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. 
Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.